Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, Super Tuesday edition of the program. And the only political connection that we have to our first story today uh, is the fact that when something happens with a gun, like what happened in Allen, Texas over the weekend, uh, oftentimes politicians just fall all over themselves to do what they can to make sure that we all know that they want common sense gun control. And again, I don't I don't mean to disparage anybody who's ever been involved in a gun accident or anyone who's ever lost somebody because of gun violence. That's certainly not the intent here. The intent is to say, look, let's when we talk about common sense gun reform, we have to take a look at what's common and what's sensical. And the reality is that criminals don't care about common sense gun reform. People who want to do harm with guns are going to do harm with guns. And the question we have to ask then is, you know, what's the intent? The same weekend, same state, this time Brownsville, Texas, perhaps you heard about the issue of the gentleman who was accused of attempting to kill by running over 18 different people at the U.S.-Mexico border of Brownsville. It's amazing. Uh, George Alvarez is identified as the driver, and this guy has a rap sheet a mile long. He was very combative when he was taken into custody. He gave a lot of different names. Uh, he, he really wasn't willing to take responsibility for what he had done. Uh, it, video of the incident showed Mr. Alvarez driving in a gray Range Rover. He was driving, quote, at a high rate of speed when the car struck the individuals sitting on the sidewalk. Um, lots of bodies, just, uh, it, was, it wasn't pretty. I mean, just not pretty. Uh, Brownsville Police Chief Felix Sosueda said during a press conference yesterday, the SUV ran a red light, lost control, flipped on its side, and st- struck a co- total of 18 individuals. It was further found that there were six fatalities on the scene, 12 people critically injured. Um, that, that was the initial report. Now it's grown to eight fatalities. Uh, the driver of the vehicle had attempted to flee the scene, but was held down by several individuals there. George Alvarez is a local of Brownsville. Uh, uh, Police Chief Sosueda said that he also had an extensive rap sheet. Uh, he's been formally charged and arraigned on eight counts of manslaughter and 10 counts of aggregated assault with a deadly weapon. Now, that is key. He's being held on bond $3.6 million. When he was arrested, uh, police displayed a poster board that listed his criminal activity. Uh, Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon twice. Assault against an elderly or disabled person. Assault causing bodily injury to a family member four different times. Assault of a public servant. Burglary of a vehicle twice. Assault causing bodily injury. And and the list goes on. Possession of marijuana, resisting arrest, etc., etc. He's not cooperating. And uh, they're still trying to figure out whether or not uh, this was a, you know, that there was a, uh, an intentional act, obviously, as a criminal act. But nowhere in this conversation have you heard the question of whether or not we should ban cars. Nowhere have we heard anyone saying common sense car reform. And I bring this up not to, well, that's a false equivalency, Roger. We all know guns can, are far more damaging than, um, than car wrecks. Well, let's see. Again, once again, have Google will search. We'll take a look at the most recent statistics as to how many people die because of car accidents and which state has the most car accidents. By matter of fact, uh, worldpopulationreview.com 
says the states with the most fatalities in vehicles, it's almost neck and neck between Texas and California. Texas had 3,305 last year, and California had 3,259. Okay. Uh, the number of de- car deaths, motor vehicle deaths, in the month of February of 2023 was 3,160. That's down 3% from 2022, but up 13% from 2021. Well, that makes sense, 2021. No one was driving, right? Um, and, and by the way, the chances of a car accident uh, killing somebody uh, with more than one person in the car, so more than one fatality, about 8% of the time that happens. Now, when you compare that to the number of people who die in gun-related deaths, the numbers are eerily similar. So the question we have to ask is, why is it that people will say we need to have, you know, common sense gun reform when the reality is there are far more opportunities for people to die in car crashes? Now, I realize you'd say, okay, well, there's far more people dying in car crashes or or, or driving cars on a regular basis and they don't nearly end up in as many fatalities. So that should give you the answer to your question. But I'm just I'm curious. And the, the reason I am is because this man had criminal intent or so it would appear. All of the people who were waiting at the Brownsville station, as it were, not to quote that old band from the 1970s, but they were appeared to be Venezuelan nationals. These were, I think they were exclusively men who were there. And Brownsville is that place in the southernmost uh, part of the U.S.-Mexican border where the majority of the people who come into Brownsville are coming from Venezuela. Matter of fact, they get, they get something like 15,000 people a month. It's way more than the border folks can handle. And ironically, here we are with Title uh, 142. That was the COVID-era restrictions that was placed in there by the Trump administration in 2020 to limit illegal immigration, just limit immigration, period, because of the COVID shutdown. It proved to be very effective. So the Biden administration kept it going. Well, the Biden administration wants to stop doing it now, and it's scheduled to end, I think, on Thursday of this week. But the problem is they have not made provisions for having more officers on hand. They're they're not prepared to take as many illegals. I mean, everyone knows it's going to end, and so they're anticipating a huge surge of the number of people who will be trying to come into this country illegally. So first and foremost, we pray for for the family members of those who survived the attack and for those who did survive this attack for their full and complete healing. Also for those who lost loved ones and also for the family of this guy who just does not seem to be in his right mind right now. But this is a perfect opportunity for us in the body of Christ to ask the question, where do we stand up? What's the biblical worldview on this? The biblical worldview is, of course, welcome the immigrant who comes here legally. If you look at the, uh, if you look at the scripture, you know, and, and to welcome the sojourner, the sojourner was someone in biblical times who was traveling from one country to another, had their paperwork in order, and they were just there visiting. You know, for those who say, well, anytime you see anything about border patrol, progressive Christians will say, no person is illegal. Well, quite frankly, if you don't have the proper documentation, and you're in a country where you don't belong, you are illegal. For example, try to travel through Europe as an American without your passport, and then tell me no person is illegal. If you try to get into France or Spain or wherever, and you don't have your passport, they will bounce you from that country if they so choose. That is their prerogative. It's kind of that no person is illegal thing is kind of the everybody goes to heaven thing too. I mean, when you get right down to it, 
Heaven is a, you've seen the meme. Heaven is a place that has one entry. It definitely has walls. The people who are there are allowed to be there, but the people who are not there allowed to be there are definitely not welcome there. I mean, and your point of entry rather than a passport is your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that you believe his blood paid the penalty for your sin, that not only pays the penalty but wipes it clean from your record, that you repent of that sin and that you continue to repent of your sin as you serve Jesus Christ as your Lord as well as you're recognizing him as your Savior. In Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So therein lies the rub. So yes, there is citizenship in heaven and you bet there's a passport. There's no question about that. And anybody who doesn't, look at the wise and foolish virgin story. I mean, look at the different parables in scripture. There will be people admitted to heaven. There will be people kept out of heaven. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for people who don't go to heaven. I mean, that's just a reality. So as people say, gosh, we've got to secure the borders, absolutely need to secure the borders. Does that mean we turn people away because we don't? Millions of people legally immigrate into the United States every year. That's not the issue. The question is what to do about illegal immigration. And so Brownsville finds itself kind of as uh, uh, right smack dab in the middle, <laughs> middle of this conversation where you're wondering what is going to happen once uh, Title 142 is lifted and there's an influx of people trying to storm the border, flood it, come in here illegally. And Lord, have mercy on those who are trying to come for a better life, those who are being smuggled in, and there's illegal activity happening with their migration. And then those who are trying to enforce the borders and the towns that get uh, infiltrated with people who may wind up to be like uh, uh, Mr. Alvarez here who grabs a Range Rover and drives it into a, a crowd full of people. Lord, have mercy, and Christ have mercy. We'll put a link for this article up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll take a quick break. And as we continue, speaking of cars and speaking of car accidents, uh, Jenny Levitt is an author who understands a thing or two about when a car accident can overturn your life as a cancer survivor, stage four cancer survivor. She figured she was pretty much out of the woods, having endured what seemed to be the greatest test of her life. And then it was a car crash involving her two sons and a drunk driver that really left her looking for answers amidst the shattered pieces of her life. She writes about her story in a book called God Prints, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. There's a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jenny Levitt's going to tell her incredible story on the other side of this break as The Bottom Line continues. Today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to talk about tragedy. We're going to talk about triumph. We're going to talk about how God makes himself... a available to us and also reveals himself to us sometimes in the tougher places of life. Jenny Levitt is a pastor's wife and an author who's written a fascinating book called God Prints. It's a true story, finding evidence of God in the shattered pieces of life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jenny Levitt, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much for having me. Tough enough being a pastor's wife, but then having the ministry that you have, and I say that you know, kind of in air quotes, because I think most of us would agree that some of the most effective ministries come from the times of life where we really, you know, it's like, God, can you just kind of get me to the head of the line? Do I really have to go through this trauma or two, <laughs> quite frankly, as a cancer survivor, mm-hmm. and also as a mom who uh, uh, you describe yourself as a reluctant expert on sorrow. Uh, talk about what led you to say, okay, it's tough enough to have gone through a couple of situations that I've gone through, but I really need to tell this story because I think other people need to hear it. They'll be blessed by it. 
Yeah, we, um, w- well, in a nutshell, we lost our 17-year-old son um, in a drunk driving accident in 2015, oh, and so we sorry. almost lost our oldest son, Caleb. Um, mm. And we have been through, you know, some really hard times in our in our lives anyway. I'm also a stage 4 cancer survivor. Um, but since we've lost Jacob, there's a new compassion, I guess, a deeper compassion for other people that have um, also lost children, especially, but really any loss. And it's just one of those things that the more people we meet, the more we realize that the need for hope and encouragement that God can see you through, no matter what mm-hmm. you're going through, that the mm-hmm. need is just so great. And as much as we would long to just sit down and, you know, have lunch with every person we meet that that um, is going through this, they really need more than that. And um, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I decided to go ahead and write the book so we could try to en- encourage people that there, hi- there is hope on the other side and you can, you can actually grow um, and become a better person through it. Yeah. You know, if you, if you allow the process to, to heal you the right way, allow God to step in and, and help you. You know, I, I marvel at uh, the, the courage that you have shown and your husband as well to endure these things, because it seems like there are a whole generation of people who are losing their resilience. I'm actually uh, uh, working with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a uh, clinical psychologist who said during the last recession, 2008, as he was doing his internship, he saw a number of people who were dealing with the fact that they had been in the financial world, they lost their job, they kind of lost their focus. And they really lost their purpose in life. And it seems like when, you know, you as a pastor's wife and a mom uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer, that's enough of a wake up call to say, wow, that's going to rattle my cage. Talk about what it was like, what what kind of physical and emotional state you were in when the accident happened, because you had been a survivor of stage four cancer at that point, had you not? I had. Yeah. Um, Thank God I've been. I've been clear since November of 1998. I've had um, quite a few scares since then. Um, Mm -hmm. And honestly, the last several years, the farther I get out, it's all related to long-term effects of the the radiation and the chemo, really. Interesting. Um, Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Our son who passed away, Jacob, asked me one time, Mom, why would they cure cancer with something that they know causes cancer? Mm. And I remember telling him, well, you know, at the time, Jacob, I had a 25% chance of making it. So it's not Mm -hmm. like we had a whole lot of options. We had to do what we had to do, and at least I'm alive, you know, all these years later. Um, But, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned resilience because Caleb and I, the son that did survive maybe a couple of years ago, we were talking about um, uh, he, he frequently has people say similar things to him because he, I like, I, I really have to start at the top of his head and work down to try to remember all of his injuries because he almost mm. died as well. Wow. Um, traumatic brain injury, fractured C7 that sliced through his, one of his veins in his neck, mm. um, broke his left leg, broke his right arm, broke his pelvis in three places, lacerated his liver. Like he, he's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And when people hear his story, they'll ask him about it. And a couple of years ago, he was telling me, Mom, I just don't get it. Like, what is our other option to just curl up in a corner somewhere and cry and never go out and face the world? At some point, we have to learn from it, grow, and continue to live. And I said, mm, son, there are some people that they're just, 
they're never the same. They're mm -hmm. a shell of themselves or they don't process it right. We have met people since then that you would think their loss was last week and you find out it was 17 years ago or 20 yes. years ago. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so we, we as a family have chosen that we, if we were going to go through something like that, we want God to get the glory from it. We want to help other people because we've had people come alongside us and help us. Um, you know, and in that same conversation with Caleb, he was he was thinking back to even just 100, 200 years ago in our nation alone, um, you know, when plagues and fevers would sweep through and right. people, life didn't stop. They had to learn to process it and go on, you know, and live. And I think you're right. That is becoming, I don't know, a lost art maybe in, in our yeah. society, especially where people are turning to all these other things and finding that it's not meeting that, that core need that, yeah, you know, that need for something tangible to hold on to. Yeah. It's amazing. Jenny Levitt is my guest today here on the bottom line, L E A V I T T. If you're Googling along with us at home, we have a link for her book up at the bottom It's called God Prince: finding evidence of God in the shattered pieces of life. And toward that point about resilience. So just want to make this point before we move on, because I remember listening to an interview with Dick Van Dyke, who was going through, uh, you know, infidelity, alcoholism, and yet he was teaching Sunday school at his local church. And he mm -hmm. was talking to the mm -hmm. interviewer about what it was like for him to go through rehab. But he said, you know, we tried to keep everything down low because people found out that Dick Van Dyke was an alcoholic. He might not work again. And he said, just kind of almost, you know, with without even thinking about what he was saying out loud, he says, you know, nowadays, if I weren't an alcoholic, I don't think I'd have a career because it seems like everybody identifies so much with your pain and they think that that's kind of mm -hmm. normal. You know, you go through the painful thing, mm -hmm. you get a little rehab or whatever and go on. And the Hollywood version of your story, Jenny Levitt, is that Jacob pulls through, that Caleb, you know, doesn't have the problems that he does, that your stage four cancer puts you with a pink ribbon on walking in marches and saying, hey, I beat this and, you know, whatever. And the reality mm -hmm. is, I, I love the way you describe your walk with God as a dark road. You know, I mean, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's not that rainbow, sunshiny road. Talk, talk about what it's like to know that you have the light to, you know, the lamp into your feet, the light into your path, but there's still days, if not the best way to describe your walk with the Lord right now is it's a dark road, but he's my light. Mm -hmm. I remember not too long after the accident. Um, it's funny how um, when you go through things, you know, if you've been a, which I know you've been a Christian for a long time, but anybody who's been a Christian for a long time and has actually read scripture, you know that there are times when you've read the same passage 10 times and all of a sudden it takes on a different meaning or something jumps out. And I remember Psalm 23, which most people, even if you're not a churchgoer, they know the Lord right. is my shepherd. You know, they know that one. And I remember when, um, after the accident, I got to the part where it talks about him walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And I remember thinking, that is what this part of our life feels like. Mm. But you're walking through the valley. Right. And not you're not staying there. You know, you're you're going to walk through the valley. And when I became a Christian as a teenager, one of the very first scriptures that um, that God gave me to hold on to, and I didn't realize at the time that's what it was, was that he will never leave us or forsake us. 
And the kind of the combination of those two really helped me through um, that first initial, like, why, God, why am I in this dark valley? Mm -hmm. And and then just holding on to the fact that he will never leave me, he'll never forsake me. And like you said, you know, the Psalms took on a whole new meaning. When you read through the Psalms, there are so many times when they are just real people. They really had questions. They really... What I love about them, though, is they'll start out like really questioning and sometimes angry and, you know, uh, even like, God, judge my enemies, kill them all, you know. By the end, by the end, they've turned that and they can find the goodness and find the praise and, um, like you said, find that light for just the next step. Sometimes it is only that next step, you know, Mm -hmm. and when you're really overwhelmed with grief and trauma and the unexpected shocks of life and everything. I've, I've told people before, sometimes you just have to take it, not just a day at a time, but an hour at a time and let God illuminate just that next step. What's Hmm. the next right thing to do right now? Hmm. You know, just that one next thing. Yeah. I love that. That is so, it is powerful. It's strengthening and encouraging, but it also does not minimize the pain uh, that you and your family have gone mm-hmm. through. Jenny Levitt is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. She and her pastor husband, Myron, have a, an amazing story about a couple of sons, a cancer survival, uh, life-threatening and life-ending car crash. Uh, it's remarkable to, to read this and even just to be having this conversation right now with her. Her book is called God Prince, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Jenny Levitt is my guest. Fascinating discussion, powerful conversation about the sanctity of human life and how any loss of life can have a powerful impact on the people who remain. Uh, Jenny, a stage four cancer survivor, thinks she's made it through the worst of the worst, the dark night of the soul, and then gets that phone call that her two sons had been involved in an accident with a drunk driver. Uh, Her 17-year-old son, Jacob, is now home with the Lord. Her other son, Caleb, is uh, hanging on for dear life. And she writes about the the experience there in her book called God Prince, Finding Evidence of God and the Shattered Pieces of Life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com and a copy of the book that we're giving away right now. 800 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, the book is called God Prince, Finding Evidence of God and the Shattered Pieces of Life by Jenny Levitt, pastor's wife and author. 
is the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, I I often wonder, you've seen this happen so many times, maybe in the movies or on television, or maybe it's happened in real life. There's that very valuable piece of art. Maybe it's a, a, a sculpture or a vase or something like that. And a child kind of carelessly, uh, randomly bumps into where it was sitting. And next thing you know, it goes spiraling toward the ground. And you dive, you lunge, you pull a couple of muscles in your back, and you try to catch it before it hits the ground, but you're too late. And there lies that precious piece of whatever it was on the ground in a million pieces. And you ask yourself, how can we ever put it back together? You ever seen one of those things put back together? It's pretty impressive, isn't it? But at the same time, you see it, and they got it to look like the shape of the Voss or the shape of the piece of art or whatever it is. But you can still see all the break marks. You can still see all the cracks. And you have to wonder, if I were to pour liquid into this, would it come seeping out? I love the fact that uh, there was a book years ago called God Uses Shattered Pots, something like that. The idea that when you look at your life and my life, and we look at the scripture where we are told that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone, the foundation of faith. Each of us is going to have an encounter with that stone. And scripture tells us that either the stone will trip us up and we will fall, or the stone will land upon us and we'll be crushed. Now, the good news is for those of us who have tripped on that stone, realize the error of our ways by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can be rebuilt. And even with the scars that we have, if we are filled with that Holy Spirit, if there are any breaks in what's put together, it's because the Holy Spirit is finding its way seeping through the cracks into the lives of others. But woe to the people upon whom that stone falls, because they will be crushed and destroyed for all eternity. That is the gospel message, and that's the bottom line. Part two of my conversation with Jenny Levitt about God Prince coming up next as the bottom line continues. Don't believe your insurance company is looking out for you. They're not. They want you to call them after you're in an accident, but you shouldn't handle that alone. That's where Stephanie Cover of Cover Law shines. With 20 years of insurance industry experience, she knows all the angles and will fight for your rights. Insurance companies pretend to be your partner, but in reality, their primary goal is to pay you as little as possible. When you work with Cover Law, Stephanie becomes your negotiator, and the insurance companies must talk to her, not you. You need to rest and heal. Stephanie is different from other attorneys. She's fully invested in your legal, medical, financial, emotional, and spiritual needs. After an accident, you don't want to deal with insurance adjusters who want to minimize your payout. So don't wait. Contact Cape Wright's personal injury attorney today at capewrightradio.com slash coverlaw. You won't pay a dime to talk to someone who truly cares about your healing. Jenny Levitt is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, a truly remarkable woman, pastor's wife, a mom, cancer survivor, and author of the book called God Print, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And Jenny, I really appreciate your candor, not only in our conversation here, but also in the writing of the book, uh, God Prince, because you as a stage four cancer survivor, uh, your son's being involved in an auto accident, one of them that ushered uh, your son Jacob into heaven, and the other one that set your son Caleb on a pretty remarkable journey of surviving and just a whole 
uh, slew of medical challenges. Um, you're, you and your husband, Myron, are still together and still smiling. Uh, what, what, has this, what kind of impact has this had on your marriage? I'm not going to say how has it changed you, because how could it not change you? But, but what kind of impact mm-hmm. has it had on your marriage with him? Well, when when the accident happened, we were over the youth ministries um, at our church, and um, at three months before the accident happened, a young girl, seven years old in our church, had just uh, passed away from brain cancer, and mm-hmm. we had just sat down with the parents, and, you know, we've been in ministry in some form of ministry for decades, and we sat down with them and basically warned them marriages that lose a child, you're going to have to fight for the marriage. You know, the odds are not in your favor. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to make choices knowing that I need to, I need to make this a priority. I need to make this relationship a priority. So then three months later, we lost Jacob. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the very first things that we talked about within the first couple of days. I don't know, that whole time is kind of foggy. But we talked about it, and we were like, we are going to have to make the choice to recognize that our marriage, if it's going to survive, it's going to take work. And and it did. You know, I'm I'm not going to lie. There were some very, shall we say, heated discussions, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, and just things that come up. And um, I kind of liken it to if you have cracks in your relationship before a traumatic event happens, those cracks can become chasms um, if you don't pay attention to them and work on them. Um, And then you top that off with just the fact that men and women are completely different anyway and grieve differently and think differently. And um, it can really lead to some serious disagreements and you have to make that choice that I'm going to find help. I'm going to seek out answers. I'm going to talk, whatever we have to do to work through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you, I'm so, so, so grateful for some of the, um, they're almost like mentors, the older couples that have lost children a long time before we lost Jacob that reached out to us. And some of them have become dear friends because they've showed us that it's possible to not only survive, but to actually grow closer, mm-hmm. um, through something like this. And that's actually one of the reasons why I did write the book, because I want people to know that it is possible. Um, it definitely, definitely is easier with Christ, mm-hmm. because at least you always have him in common. You know, you can always reach towards him, and he'll help both of you, um, you know, to come together and find agreement and find solutions. Wow. That's that's great counsel from Jenny Levitt today here on The Bottom Line. Her book is called God Prince, Finding Evidence of God and the Shattered Pieces of Life. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, now, where you find yourself in 2023, you find yourself as uh, a parent still, a, a proud pastor's wife. You're still ministering to people with the, uh, the reluctant ministry that you've uh, uh, been given. Do, how do you deal with the moments where there's a temptation, I'm sure, to say, wow, God, I've been through a lot. You know, we had the one son who's now with you, the other one who had the traumatic uh, injury in the same accident, my cancer, the stresses, the strains, the financial pressure, all of that stuff. Um, and yet you described yourself as being a happy pilgrim on a dark road that has enough light for you to take the next step. How How, how is Jenny Levitt doing right now? I'm doing well. Um, <laughs> it... it 
takes work, even if you're not going through a traumatic event, like even just, uh, I don't want to say just, but even the whole world, when we went through COVID these last couple of years, you know, there are a lot of people that are, that haven't been lost a child and they're going through some, some mental struggles and, um, you know, some suffering of their own and, and it will, it'll take work, um, to work through, any anxiety or stress, those kind of tend to be my, my two things that I have mm-hmm. to, you know, really watch for. Um, but the, the biggest thing is as a believer in Christ, we have that hope that, that there is coming a day when all evil, all suffering, all loss is going to be made right. Um, and we, we have that hope that this world is not all there is. And if we keep seeking Christ first and keep doing what we know we need to do, sometimes the feelings were not there, you know, as I was going through, especially some of those dark um, valleys that we were talking about, you know, sometimes those feelings are not there. And it's really easy to be like, God, where are you? I do not feel you. I don't see you. Um, But if we can hold on to the promises that we know are true, we'll come through those one step at a time. And be able to cling to that hope. And that, that was why I said a few minutes ago that it's so much easier when you have Christ, because at yeah. least I, we, we, I have that hope, you know, that um, it's too much to go into right now, but God led us to a poem that Jacob wrote that he was not, he was not a writer, mm-hmm. um, where in the poem he had wrestled through God with God. He knew he was a sinful man. He didn't feel worthy, and then in the very last end, the last two stanzas of the poem, he talks about dancing on the streets of gold and seeing his Savior face-to-face. And as a mom, that that brought such peace to my heart that I knew Jacob wasn't just playing around with Christianity. He wasn't just going to church because his parents or his dad's a pastor. You know, it's too, too easy for kids who were raised in church to get like that, you know, but that he had actually wrestled with those things. And so I do, I have hope that I will see him again. And I, I have that. hope that if I just keep, keep laboring while it's day and while we still have light, that one day it's going to be worth it. And in the meantime, God gives us peace and joy and his spirit to help us while we still have to walk here on this earth. I'm talking with Thank Jenny God. Levitt. Yeah, praise God. I'm talking with Jenny Levitt today here on The Bottom Line about her book called God Prints, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Got about 90 seconds left in our conversation. Jenny, what have you learned about God through your trials that surprised you? Or maybe even as you were writing this book and kind of reliving the cancer, reliving Jacob's fatal car crash. I mean, as you had to walk down those roads, what, what surprised you about your relationship with him? What really surprised me the most is I sat down to, um, at first I was just going to write about our journey through the accident because my husband already actually, since he's a pastor, he already shares our story um, multiple places. And people would ask us for the rest of the story. But then I started thinking, you know, God was preparing us way before the accident. Um, And my husband Myron and I would talk about it. And there were lessons that we learned through the cancer and through all the hard times of our life, that when we really stopped to think about them, we were like blown away that God knew in 2015 we were going to lose Jacob. 
and he was giving us those those glimpses of of his faithfulness, his provision, um, whatever it was, he was giving us those things to hold on to like reference points that when the greatest trial of our life came, we could look back and say, okay, God was faithful and brought me through stage four cancer. He provided Mm -hmm. everything we needed. He brought us to the doctors we needed. You know, he did everything. He took care of us. He's going to take care of us now. That's just one example. But when I sat down to really write the book, I was just amazed at how many things like that I could think of, where I was like, wow, he really has prepared us, and we just didn't even know it. That's kind of where the name came from, that we could see his his handprints, his hands on our lives preparing us when you look back. Mm. You know, a lot of times when we're going through things, we don't see that, but then we look back and we can. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that you took the time to be reflective and maybe that will inspire. Well, I'm sure it will inspire many of our listeners who get a hold of this book, God Prince, to look at their own stories and see the places instead mm-hmm. of focusing on the, like you mentioned earlier, some people kind of get stuck when they go through a trauma and you want to see them move on. And I can think of people, I know you know people too, that have had that situation, mm-hmm. but your story is such an inspiring one, uh, even with the catastrophes, even with every reason to take a step back or to step away from God and say, well, if you were a loving God, you know, my son would still be here and I would have gone through cancer and Mm -hmm. that type of stuff. I mean, but you're here and you have this testimony and Mm -hmm. we're so grateful for it and really inspired by it. Uh, Jenny Levitt, the book is called God Prince, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jenny, thank you for telling your story and for sharing it with us today here on The Bottom Line. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Jenny Levitt has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line Show, and what a great, uh, powerful resource uh, that she has. God Prince is the name of the book, and we've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Basically, evidence of of God, and you find that in the shattered pieces of life. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and a copy of the book we're giving away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, the book is called God Prince. It's a true story, and evidence of God in the shattered pieces of life by stage four cancer survivor Jenny Levitt, who st- survived the cancer, and then had to face the reality that her her sons were involved in a, a, a collision, if you will, with a drunk driver. And uh, Jacob and Caleb were both, uh, well, Jacob had, was at the morgue and Caleb was fighting for his life. Um, when you get to that point where you realize, you know, was it Mother Teresa said, you never know Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. Um, well, this is a great story of encouragement uh, to deal with that. is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We're going to take a quick break, and as we continue, uh, follow up on something I talked about yesterday here on the program uh, that really struck a nerve with a lot of bottom line listeners with regard to men and abortion. And I want to do a little follow up on something I found in the New York Times of all places. That was actually kind of buried uh, several pages back right after uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned. And as we come up on the one year anniversary of that monumental event that's coming up next month, I want to get into a little bit more about men and abortion. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. We're giving away a copy of Jenny Levitt's book called God Prince, 
evidence of God and the shattered pieces of life. We may have a couple of copies to give away. Uh, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Uh, yesterday on the program, I was sharing with you a study uh, that came out of a, a secular-based group out of Oklahoma where they were surveying the number of men who talked about how uh, abortion had impacted them. And the numbers were rather staggering. Over 50% of men said that they had a negative reaction to their partner, either their wife or their girlfriend, having an abortion. Many of them didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, the number of guys who experienced some kind of traumatic episode was up around 71%. And it, it, it affected Christian men as well as unbelievers. As a matter of fact, in the survey, 24% of the guys identified as Catholic and 30% identified as Protestant. And I, I implored us as bottom line listeners to move past the thought process that says, um, you know, here's what we're doing, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the abortion world. And, um, and we, we need to treat this as something where we're helping them deal with that issue as opposed to us in the church and the reality is over 50 percent of the women who go to abortion clinics are regular church attenders and as we saw in this report you know over 50 percent of the men either identify as catholic or protestant who are the ones who impregnated the young woman so i mean it's it's something to really think about and so every time we get a donation to preborn and the work that preborn does because the work that preborn does is becoming more and more important as people are getting becoming more and more confused over gender identity and things of that nature. Um, the idea that they have, 50 years ago, there were a lot of people who did not see the preborn child as a human being. And one of the greatest weapons that we have in that fight for showing you know, that actual right is the ultrasound machine. And the fact that so many bottom line listeners have stepped up over the past six, seven months, we've donated enough money to provide six ultrasound machines to preborn clinics in the state of California. But it goes beyond that. The number of people who are stepping up now on a regular basis, it seems like more and more week in and week out, more bottom line listeners are, you know, it's, there's the one-time donation like Mariama uh, sent in a check for $2,000 last week. And I'm so grateful for that one-time influx that could be used either for individual uh, prenatal treatments where you see the ultrasound uh, technology used to help a woman make the best decision for her and the child regarding whether or not to become a mom, whether or not to release that child for adoption, or if it's legal in the state, whether or not they want to abort. And 85% of the time, mom chooses life for the baby, which is fantastic. It's not 100% like I would like it to be, but it's still, it's 85%. It's way higher than it is if a woman goes to an abortion clinic. So your donations there are really helping. But I'm encouraged by the number of people who are stepping up and saying, yeah, I want to do this on a regular basis. I know that's how we handle it in our family. Lisa and I uh, make a provision for a couple of uh, ultrasound appointments every month through preborn, and we're very happy uh, to do that. A lot of listeners have said, yeah, I'll, my sister does $28 a month you know, for one ultrasound visit, and I think that's fantastic. Um, yesterday at the end of the program, Daniel from Pleasanton, one of our KCBC listeners, uh, made a pledge of $140 a month. And Daniel, thank you for that. That's a that's five children every month whose lives will be spared. Statistically, it proves that uh, you know it's eighty five percent. So more than four out of five kids um, in Daniel's donation are going to be spared. They're either going to be delivered into a family, uh, adoptive family that wants to raise that child, or the mom and dad are going to say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to do this. And it's amazing the number of guys 
who especially will say, I was pro-abortion until I saw an ultrasound. I was pro, that's my son-in-law Brian's story with my grandson Isaac. Uh, Brian was pretty, he wasn't passionately pro-abortion, a Christian guy, but he was like, you know, if you want to get one, get one. If you don't, don't, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Until my daughter Emily got pregnant, they went in for the first appointment with the OBGYN and they did an ultrasound. And he said, the moment I heard that heartbeat, I just burst into tears and asked myself, that heartbeat sounds so beautiful. Why would anyone want to stop that heart from beating? And it's amazing how many men now, they're, they're kind of pro-abortion on the side. Not, they're not passionately pro-abortion. They're like, yeah, if you want one, get one. That, you know, it's a woman's decision and I wouldn't tell her what to do. But look at the guy. Daniel stepped up yesterday with a, a, a donation of $140 every month, which provides five ultrasound treatments at a preborn clinic. That'll go to one in Northern California. Daniel, thank you so much for calling. By the way, 833-850-BABY is the number to call. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229. Or if you want to give a gift online, go to Radio. Dot com. There's a preborn banner there. If it's easier to remember, and I know a lot of people say, well, I can remember your name really easily. Uh, my website, rogermarsh.com, has a link for the preborn banner up there as well. And you click on that. And as we saw from a listener who was a K Bright listener who went through rogermarsh.com last week, click the banner. It goes right through K Bright, and we'll know that you're a K Bright or a KCBC listener uh, or a KLDC listener um, who's supporting preborn. Daniel, I just wanted to give you a shout out and thank you for that donation because it's every time a guy makes a donation to this and says, this is important to me as a father, as a grandfather, or maybe a gift as a memorial gift. You know, sometimes we hear from people who will give gifts and they're remembering a child that they, you know, were not given the privilege to raise. They were not uh, given the opportunity to uh, to be involved in that child's life. I want to take a break, and when we come back, take a look at an article that I was doing some research after the program yesterday. Uh, the New York Times, of all places, did a report where they started, they, they titled it The Voices of Men Affected by Abortion. This has a byline. It was posted um, on June 25th, the day after Roe versus Wade. They set out to find guys. You know, they were looking for every angle they possibly could. Um, that they, you know, they were trying to find men who were saying, you know what, we, we need more masculine voices in, in, the, in the fatherhood and abortion story. You know, we need men to step up and support women. And what they wound up finding was an overwhelming response from guys who said, you know what, I regret it. I have paid for many abortions and I regret each one of them. One guy in his 60s said, oh, what I realize now looking back on what happened. I didn't know what I was doing then, but I know now what I was doing. It's, a, it's an amazing story that even quotes some good pro-life material in it as well. I want to talk about that more on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, 
now. You give a gift of $28, that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. Welcome back to the Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. You still have a few moments left to call in. We do, I want to confirm, we have one copy of Jenny Levitt's book, God Prince, uh, Finding Evidence of God and the Shattered Pieces of Life that we're giving away right now. Uh, Jenny, a stage four cancer survivor who lost her son Jacob in a... Uh, an accident where he was driving and uh, was involved in a crash with a drunk driver. Her son, Caleb, suffered a traumatic brain injury but did survive that. And uh, she thought, boy, man, if I, I thought that I knew what it was like to go through suffering and experience God in the broken pieces of life with my cancer diagnosis, then to have all of this show up again in the car crash... Uh, it's just, it's powerful. And I'm glad Jenny shared her story and glad we had a chance to talk about it today, especially in light of the story we opened up uh, the hour with, with regard to the crash in Brownsville, Texas, the uh, driver, Carlos Alvarez, uh, 34 years of age, long rap sheet of aggravated assault, et cetera, et cetera. You can find it all at thebottomlineshow.com. But this guy drove a Range Rover into a crowd of people at the Brownsville Immigration Station, uh, eight people killed and another 10 people injured. Uh, and, and just kind of he's an enemy combatant right now, and it's just, it's so awful. Whenever something like that happens, if there's a shooting death like in Allen, Texas, or an automotive death uh, like in Brownsville, we just shake our heads, and it's horrible, it's awful. But when it's an abortion-related death, the the media tends to paint the picture of, well, that it was painless, it was easy, no one really died because that was just fetal tissue, and no one's really experiencing any long-term impact and in the year i mean it's been 11 months since roe versus wade was overturned all that basically did was reverted the decision back to states and half the states are doubling down california colorado michigan connecticut all basically enshrining abortion in their constitutions um, other states like texas florida mississippi etc uh, well mississippi of course because that's where the dobbs case originated uh, all becoming passionately pro-life and yesterday I was sharing statistics that I came across. Thank you, Tony Cashman, our general sales manager here at The Bottom Line Show, for uh, discovering an article in the Washington Standard about the number of men, a study out of Oklahoma City, uh, that looked at the number of men who were negatively impacted by abortion, especially those who had considered themselves to be pro-abortion. And I found a follow-up article to that in the New York Times, of all places, where they really they were trying to, I, I think they call this a self-own um, in the social media world, they were trying desperately to say, well, you know, it's not just women. I mean, we're, we're going to find a bunch of guys who talk about why they think abortion is the best thing that ever happened. It's good for them. It's good for women, blah, blah, blah. And instead, what they ran into was a whole slew of men who had been pro-abortion. But as they were getting older, looked back and said, wait a minute. Um, I, I wonder what it was like. Jennifer Reich 
is a sociology professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. And she's been studying what she calls the male discourse on abortion. And she said there's a sadness that a lot of guys, real, even if they were passionately pro-abortion, when their wife or girlfriend had the abortion of their child, once they get older, they're like, wait, I'm not a dad. I'm missing out on this. I mean, I'll tell you what, in my 60s now, if I had been in a situation where that had been, that had happened, um, and looking back with those, those regrets, I mean, my goodness. But it's interesting because the abortion argument is, it's one that has become a, a female oriented argument whether you are pro or not pro even brad mattis who's the president of the life issues institute says men are often told my body my choice be supportive or get out of the way and he said you know men who oppose abortion don't feel heard but men who support abortion are often told you don't matter you don't count and when i was commending james our listener on kcbc from pleasanton for his 140 dollar monthly donation to preborn that he made yesterday uh that'll provide five ultrasounds every month and uh, i'm grateful not only that he made a generous donation i mean that's that's wonderful and uh, as, as many of those as we can get if you think about uh supporting a nonprofit like preborn this is a great way to go 28 dollars a month for one ultra, uh, ultrasound or 56 dollars a month for two 140 for five but the fact that james a guy made this contribution said it's important to him and james i don't know your story but I would suspect that there's something in there that said this is important and I know how important it is. Maybe, you know, because it almost hit your family. 833-850-BABY is the number to call. Make your best donation to Preborn right now. And I encourage you to do so. And thank you, James, for doing so. For our KCBC audience, you can enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus is coming up next. For those who remain on the network, an interesting bill in Kansas that was passed by the legislature. It was vetoed by the governor, but then it was the veto got an override. And what it means for the establishment of men and women and the definition of male and female in the Sunflower State. We're going to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, welcome back to the Bottom Line Show, or welcome to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Grateful to have you along for the ride here, here on this Super Tuesday edition of the program today. And, uh, you know, if we're still taking your calls for Jeannie Levitt's book, a powerful, powerful uh, discussion and conversation about what happens when uh, basically everything falls apart. And uh, you're looking for evidence that God is still there in the shattered pieces of your life. A remarkable story that Jeannie tells in her book called God Prints, Finding Evidence of God in the Shattered Pieces of Life. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. You ever wondered why people are, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a faith-based person or not, if you have a relationship with the Lord or not. You ever wondered why people have that compassion for others, I mean, and for the sanctity of human life. I mean, a genie story, for example. I mean, this is a woman who had stage four cancer. She survived it. Um, then there's a collision with a drunk driver. Her two sons are in the car. One is hanging on for dear life, and the other one uh, winds up losing his life. And the one who survives has a traumatic brain injury. You know, you could tell that story to anybody without mentioning that genie's in ministry that she's a Christian, that she believes that her her son is in heaven and that her, uh, her her salvation is secure. Just the sheer, you know, magnitude of 
the human experience is enough for people to say, you know, I, I get it. I mean, wow, that's terrible. If that happened to me, if I had stage four cancer and my wife and I were walking through this road together and one of our kids, well, two of them got involved in the car accident and one died and the other had a TBI. I mean, we would all, you could easily rally around people who have that. You'd have to really lack a certain measure of compassion to not feel some sort of, sort of sympathy, empathy, etc. But it's interesting how when it comes to other aspects of the fully human experience, people have become almost devoid of, I, I don't know the best way to put this, so I'll just say it, logic and reason. You know, as human beings, we can empathize with other people. If you, you know, kid, see kids on the playground, the four or five kids are just being kids, and then one of them falls and scrapes their knee, and what do the other four do? They all rally around and say, oh, are you okay? Because they're kind of curious as to what happened. You know, they're still kind of learning, gee, you could fall and skin your knee and you don't fall apart. You know, your leg doesn't fall off or whatever. But they're also learning, hey, boy, if that happened to me, man, that would hurt. And so because I know it would hurt if it happened to me, it must hurt because it happened to you. And we have this commonality of the human experience. Now that, again, I mentioned that is uh, has a lot to do with the fact that God wrote his natural law into our hearts but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to quote unquote feel that way simply because they don't have the same faith traditions that we do. You can see where there's a cognitive dissonance here that people have to have to be able to say, look, as a Christian, I'm called to care for other people. I'm called to, I, what, what, uh, I'll paraphrase the words of Jesus. I was sick and you visited me. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I mean, I, I had a physical need and you met it. But your motivation for meeting that physical need was spiritual. So as human beings, you know, in the culture that we're in right now, and I encourage you to call in for Jeannie's book, by the way, it's it's fascinating 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line we're still giving away um, the copy of the book that we have uh, it, it's interesting to me to see how some people who would be so compassionate toward Jeannie Levitt's story would be so dispassionate toward people who are, are dealing with an issue of gender identity dysphoria now this is something where I'm going to I'm going to call us out first before getting into this new Kansas law because I love the law. I think it's a fantastic law and the way it was adopted I think is terrific. But I think as Christians first and foremost, we should have the deepest empathy and sympathy for anyone who's experiencing a gender dysphoria. Now, having said that, I think it's also good and right and true to be able to say we should feel empathy and sympathy for someone who's dealing with that because look at the great lengths they're willing to mutilate themselves to take drastic measures to run the risk of you know uh, castration or or infertility sterilization I mean just to try to get the physical to line up with the emotional there was a time in our culture where if someone said they wanted to do that, you wouldn't do it. I mean, I, 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 you may have seen this meme uh, on social media. I, I was reading it and it made me kind of chuckle initially, but then it also broke my heart about the father who said, my son has watched the movie Peter Pan so many times, he is now obsessed with Captain Hook. 
and he's five years old, and so I took him to the doctor, and we asked the doctor how they could go about removing one of his hands and replacing it with a hook. Now, if your five-year-old son or grandson came to you with that request, what would you do? How would you respond? I'll tell you how I have responded with my grandson. My grandson Isaac has gone through, I mean, he loves the Transformers uh, action figures, just loves them. As a matter of fact, I, I was teasing my son-in-law the other day. I said, Brian, uh, you got to watch out, you know, for Isaac because uh, he's, you know, I mean, he's, he, he's a little different, you know, than some of the other kids. He goes, oh, I know. I don't have to worry about him saying, Dad, I want to be a girl. He wants to be a, a robot. He wants to be a transformer. He wants to be a power ranger. You know, I mean, those are the things that really get to him and get under his skin. Well, we understand that children have an imagination. And yeah, it's very real to them that Isaac could turn into a robot. But we also know that's part of childhood and it's something that you outgrow. But we're living in a culture right now where there are a growing number of parents and a a growing number of adults who are utterly consumed with the concept that gender is more of a feeling and a societal norm and less something that is God-given and God-ordained. And it boggles my mind too that the number of people who are pro-science, the science is settled people, who who don't really fully understand what that phrase means. If you know anybody who's a scientist, they'll tell you the essence of scientific discovery is that the science is never settled. I mean, there are certain things that you can see in nature that keep recurring over and over and over and over again. But when it comes to the impact of introducing a virus into the culture or some kind of treatment or whatever, I mean, there are ways that we used to treat diseases back. Have you ever been to a doctor in the last five years and have the doctor say, hmm, there's something wrong with your blood. Get the leeches. Uh, That's that was at one point acceptable medicine until more study and more tests and we proved it. What if the the using of leeches to suck your blood out because there was some kind of uh, infection in the blood, what if people ran around 100 years ago and said the science is settled? Can you imagine all the welts everybody would have all over their skin? If you were a leech farmer, what kind of, you'd corner the market, right? Uh, Or you could. But when it comes to gender identity, ironically, I heard a pastor share this in a message. I watched it online. He talked about how the pandemic actually led to one of the greatest discoveries in science, and that is the fact that gender fluidity is such a thing. And I went, Whoa, where, where, where did that come from? I mean, I've asked this question before. I'll ask it again. If God is all loving and perfect and everything that he touches is good and you want to try to attach certain human behaviors to God's perfect design, then you have to ask the question, if homosexuality is God's perfect design, then why is it impossible, physically impossible, for two people who have same-sex attraction to reproduce, to enjoy physical intimacy the same way a man and a woman can? Not that they always do, but I mean, that, that's, that's the blueprint. That's the gold standard. If gender truly is fluid, then why don't people actually transition back and forth. I mean, literally, without surgery, without the injection of hormones. I wonder how many transgender activists understand that when you start introducing this concept into a child's life, there are three and four-year-olds who will go home and expect to wake up the next morning a different gender. 
Well, one state in the United States has finally done something that I don't think anybody ever thought they would ever have to do. And it actually took an overriding of a veto from Kansas's governor. See, I've already spilled the beans here uh, to get this law to come to pass. A women's bill of rights bill has passed in the Kansas legislature that actually offers something that a lot of states never thought they would have to do, but some of them don't have the courage to do, and that's to define a gender specific category to protect women in sports and other areas of life. We're going to take a look at this bill on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good to have you along here on this Super Tuesday. This is going to be a campaign issue, which is why I put this in the Super Tuesday category. If you don't think it is, guess again. One thing we did learn from the 2022 midterm elections is that Democrats can invent problems that their constituents will believe. You know, my friend and mentor, Dr. Jim Burns, talking about uh, youth ministry, said the reason why a lot of parents get fooled when their daughter, you know, goes chasing after some boy or the boy's mad, you know, madly crushing on some girl, they'll just chalk it up as puppy love, as we used to call it. And they call it. Yeah, you don't remember that song. Um, Jim would say, you got to understand with kids, it's this concept. Puppy love is real to puppies. Okay, so let's just call it what it is. When you're in the middle of adolescence and your hormones are going nuts, you do have that feeling. And nowadays, more than ever, kids take relationships like this way too seriously. They'll talk about being single and being unattached. And a breakup feels like an actual divorce. And more kids are dealing with stress and depression and anxiety over that type of stuff, where we just used to call it eighth grade, you know. I mean, but that's what they're going through now. So there's relationship dysphoria, there's gender dysphoria, but you're beginning to see it now where more and more people are standing up. The men who want to compete in women's sports, for example, are becoming problematic on a number of different levels. And it's interesting to see the number of states that are doubling down to protect the guys. Uh, this woman, Riley Gaines, I, she's married now, but she, she's the daughter of Rowdy Gaines, who's a, uh, I, that's his nickname, his real name is like Ambrose or something like that. But he, he's the guy who does the color commentary for all of NBC's swimming events, right? So when you're watching the Olympics and the guy's freaking out on the side going, he's going to break the world, right? That's Rowdy Gaines, right? So his daughter, Riley, is a swimmer because she followed in the family business. And uh, she was a, a, an outstanding swimmer at the University of Kentucky. She's now a happily married woman. But she was one of the women who had to compete against this man, William Thomas, who calls himself Leah, grew out his hair, 
shot a few hormones into his body and went from being ranked number 83 in the Ivy League in his events like the freestyle and whatever to being an NCAA women's champion. And at one point, it was Riley Gaines, I believe, who actually competed alongside this guy. They tied for fifth in one of the events. There was only one fifth-place plaque, and she was instructed to let him hold it. That's what I believe was NBC said. We want to make sure that we show Leah holding the plaque. William Thomas has not had reassignment surgery. William Thomas physically is a man with long hair who calls himself Leah and has taken a few extra shots of estrogen. William Thomas undresses in a women's locker room and says, I'm a girl, even though it's very obvious to the naked eye that he's a guy. And yet, politicians keep doubling down. No, trans rights are important. Every transgender person is going to commit suicide if we don't pass these bills, blah, blah, blippity, blah. Well, Kansas has become the first state to adopt the definition of gender that will basically keep this type of thing from happening. The legislation will prevent a man from entering a woman's bathroom, locker room, or other intimate spaces it's defined, regardless of which gender that man identifies with. Now, here's the case. Senate Bill 180 flew through the Kansas State Legislature with a two-thirds-plus majority of both Democrats and Republicans. As a matter of fact, the bill was passed initially, and it was a margin of two to one in the state house and the state senate of Kansas. On April 27th, the state legislatures had to reconvene because a week earlier, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly vetoed the bill. Now, the bill was dubbed the Women's Bill of Rights. But in the Women's Bill of Rights, it basically said, here's the deal. Um, we're going to define what a woman is, and then let the chips fall where they will. Here's the text of the bill, and this is just part of it. A female is defined as, quote, an individual whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce ova. The bill goes on to then define a male as, quote, an individual whose biological reproductive system is developed to fertilize the ova of a female. SB 180 in Kansas also defines gender words, calling for woman and girl to be used to refer to human females, and man and boy to refer to human males. Mother is defined as a parent of the female sex, father as a parent of the male sex. Now, this was made obvious in Genesis chapter three, <laughs> two, excuse me, one. I mean, all the first three chapters. God created male and female. And then talking about the offspring of said male and female. All throughout history, male and female have been understood to be defined as the state of Kansas just did. Did you ever think that we would ever have to have this conversation? I remember thinking back 15 years ago, 2008, remember here in the People's Republic of California, Proposition 8 was on the ballot. Proposition 8 was a constitutional amendment to the California State Constitution that would define marriage as the union between one man and one woman. It was very similar in wording to Prop 22, which had passed a decade or so before and then was thrown out in court. Proposition 8 passed by an overwhelming majority of California voters in 2008, if you can believe that, because nowadays I don't think that would pass. But then there was a challenge to Proposition 8. 
And then you had an attorney general by the name of Jerry Brown, who was about to become governor, and his replacement, Kamala Harris, both of whom said, we will not defend this bill in court. In other words, Proposition 8 passed. It was the voice of the will of the people, but the people who were supposed to represent the will of the people, the attorney generals in those cases, Jerry Brown and then later Kamala Harris, refused to mount a defense in court. And so even though two very qualified attorneys uh, mounted the defense, the California State Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court had basically no other option but to say, look, you guys who are trying to defend the passage of Prop 8 do not have legal standing to defend it. Therefore, we're going to go back to this lower court ruling that overturned it, and it opened the floodgates for Prop 8 to be overturned so that same-sex quote-unquote marriage could be legally defined in California. And then the Obergefell decision came in in 2015 and basically opened the floodgates. At that point, the LGBTQ activists said, well, you got nothing to worry about now because this is what we wanted. We just want you know, to, to normalize. You know, people who are living in loving marital relationships shouldn't have to hide around and you know, they could be bold about it. It affirms who we are as people. But that's pretty much the end of it. Well, guess what? Here we are eight years later and states are falling all over themselves to deal with a horribly unscientific fact, and that is a lot of people deal with gender dysphoria. A lot of younger people deal with gender dysphoria. A lot of people in the foster care system deal with gender dysphoria, all of which is stemming from abuse. And what do the states do? Rather than try to give people help to talk to, talk through, work through with counseling, some of the abuse that leads them to having this gender dysphoria, they want to codify it into law. 14-year-old girl gets abused by her stepdad or her mom's boyfriend, gets tossed out of the house, winds up in foster care, and says, wow, I just, you know, I, I don't trust my mom because she didn't, you know, care for me, and I don't want to be a girl because I don't want to be attacked by guys, and I've got a couple of friends who say maybe you'd be better off as a guy, and the only recourse for the counselors, and this is AB 2119, I think, here in California, the only recourse for the counselor for that child in foster care is to say, okay, you're a guy. We'll get you testosterone shots and we'll start the sex reassignment surgery. People are having a very difficult time coming up with a definition of male and female. They can identify these things in science in terms of plants and other animals and things like that. But when it comes to human beings, the one dividing line has always been, well, this is how I feel. If I went into a hospital and said, I feel like I have cancer, I demand treatment, they wouldn't give me treatment. If you tried to do the same thing, I feel like you should amputate my arm. Why? I don't know. It's just hurting me today. They wouldn't do that. But if you go in and say, hey, I know I look like I'm 6'3", 200 and something pounds, and I got hair all over my body, and I fathered three children, but I feel like a woman, they'd say, oh, well, here's your estrogen shots, Mr. Marsh. I mean, Ms. Marsh, how would you like to identify? So Kansas's SB 180, the Women's Bill of Rights, was passed by the legislatures in the state of Kansas by a two-to-one margin. Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. But then Laura Kelly, the governor, vetoed the bill on April 20th. So on April 27th, the legislature voted to override the veto. So it's good news. The bill is now the law in Kansas. But why did the governor overturn it? It had bipartisan support, even a group that calls itself WOLF, the Women's Liberation Front, a staunchly pro-choice women's rights group 
when when this actually passed, they went to Twitter and they posted one word, victory. They actually helped write the bill. Quote, this bill takes procedural steps to write into law common sense definitions that ensure the meaning of words like woman and mother aren't corrupted by unelected bureaucrats intent on pushing gender ideology. That's from a left-leaning pro-abortion group that supported this bill. So why did the governor veto it initially? We'll take a look at this coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment. And the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat. And you think, wow, how can can I bless someone else? Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. Kansas Senate Bill 180, also now known as the Women's Bill of Rights, has become the law in the state, even though it was passed by a two-to-one margin in both the House and the Senate the state of Kansas, Governor Laura Kelly over uh, actually vetoed the bill. The two houses got together again, overrode the veto, and now it is the law. Even feminist groups were loving this law. So why did the governor initially veto it? And quite frankly, here's the reason why. It's very simple. She said she wanted to make sure that she didn't wind up getting a whole slew of costly discrimination suits, and the suits then would create a loss of federal funding and would hurt Kansas' state economy. I do commend Governor Kelly for this. The fact that she was looking at the reality of the bill and saying, look, whether I agree with what you're doing or not, there is so much federal money coming in here because of these transgender programs that we don't want to lose the money. We also know that there could be some pretty lengthy and expensive lawsuits coming our way, and I'm trying to protect the bottom line. At least she had the courage to say that. It wasn't an ideological thing. I, I want to make sure the trans community, blah, 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 blah. Even the trans community, when they talk about things with regard to suicide and stuff like that, there are two places where they're intellectually dishonest. Intellectual dishonesty, number one, is the number of people who attempt suicide. It's tragic when someone who's dealing with gender dysphoria feels the need to end their life. But the reason why trans activists often talk about the fact that this is so common is not so much because of the way people are feeling, but rather because of what they call the hurtful rhetoric of people who don't agree with them. Me saying what I just said here, reporting on this story, and it's in the Epic Times, and we'll put it up at thebottomlineshow.com, could be construed by a trans activist as vile, hate-filled rhetoric that could cause somebody, could 
cause someone to want to consider taking their own life. In other words, you can't tell somebody who feels like they're transgender that they're wrong. I mean, that's the way they're defining it now. It, it isn't based on actual physical assault. It isn't asked based on people being thrown out of their homes if they're underage because of this, which I'm sure does happen, but not in the record numbers. But first and foremost, the, the issue with the transgender ideology about the suicide rate being so high is just because they are anticipating that the perception of a transgender student at a school, for example, and people saying disparaging things about the student would lead them to suicide, number one. Number two, no one in the LGBTQ community wants to talk about the number of people who get sex reassignment surgery and then contemplate suicide. Talk to people who transitioned and then detransitioned and ask them how they feel back in their own original gender and they'll tell you, hey, look, I was miserable living as a woman when I was born a man or the other way around. Of course, school education groups, teachers unions, stuff like that, we're all behind the trans part of it. Oh, we can't have this bill. And it's all because of money for them. It's not because of ideology. It's all. Isn't the name of the game to help somebody who has gender dysphoria kind of get settled into why they have this and get treatment for it? I never knew that if someone was having a lousy day and they said, oh, I just wish I was, I like hanging out with my dog more. I'd really rather just kind of identify that way. That we don't go around and attach a tail and start feeding him kibbles and bits. I mean, at some point you have to ask the question, who made you, how did he make you, and how does he want you to thrive? God made you the way you are, warts and all, me too, and I've got warts, so I can say that. But everything that he creates, he says is good. If the world corrupts, then there are some issues we have to deal with. But at the core, that foundation is a good one, and God is just fine with it. You could make peace with that issue, too. That is good news, and that's the bottom line.